one thing that we're seeing is that those bigger trees, because they have really thick bark, and we can tell that they survived fires in the past, that they're more resistant to fire than younger trees within bark. And it makes sense, right? Like if you try to start a fire, you don't start with a really big log. You start with kindling, you know, and what, what is the kindling in the woods? It's the branches and twigs and needles and small trees and brush. And so every time we go in and cut down a big tree, what grows in its place, but more kindling. You're listening to The Rogue Local, a podcast exploring Southern Oregon's Rogue Valley, its residents, current events, local businesses, and outdoor recreation. Support for The Rogue Local is provided by Soul Smile Dental. I'm Ryan Cavell, and on today's show, I talk to Joseph Vale, the executive director for KS Wild. We discuss their role in conservation around the Klamath Siskiyou Wilderness, the hot topic of wildfire prevention, and how you can get involved with current efforts such as influencing the new BLM land management plan and deterring the proposed LNG pipeline. Joseph grew up in Dixon, a small Illinois town that also happens to be the boyhood home of Ronald Reagan, and as you can imagine, pretty conservative. From there, Joseph went to a small liberal arts college in Madison, Wisconsin. With a shiny new biology degree in hand, all he knew was that he wanted to be near the redwoods and the ocean, and thus chose the Rogue Valley and moved, sight unseen. His passion at the time was protecting the old-growth redwood forest, and he was excited to pursue that goal. But, like many first jobs, his first gig didn't exactly fit the bill. Um, I got out here and... um First thing I did was found a job washing dishes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, at Wiley's World Pasta. Oh, yeah. That's no longer exists, know, but, yeah. but just recently, yeah, yeah. we mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah, <laughs> that was the early days of yeah. Wiley's World. Yeah, um, Terry Wiley was and Julie were just getting it going, and um, so I started just just washing dishes for them, and I was really looking for a job and anything I could do in natural resources and found a job at the Medford BLM and um, the Bureau of Land Management doing wildlife surveys, which was really cool. And I did that for two years and just learned so much about the wildlife around here and forest management. And um, yeah, I really just got to know all the complicated, what some people call the acronym soup of federal land management policies and everything like that. Um, and, but then knew that I didn't probably want to work for the federal government for the rest of my life. So, um, why was that? Well, just, uh, you know, I mean, I can guess. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I just felt like it would, I I don't know, maybe it was too easy. (laughs) Um, it just seemed like it would be something where, um, you know, I I wanted to make more of a difference too. I thought that maybe I could do more, um, working for a nonprofit organization that was, um, you know, trying, trying to get, um, you know, real, uh, advocacy going on protecting older forests. And, um, at that time that was my real interest in, in how to protect the remaining old forests. You know, I'd come, you know, being in the Midwest, you had seen that most all of the primary forests had been logged, you know, many decades ago. And, you know, being out West here, um, we have kind of those last remaining, uh, forests that, um, hadn't been, you know, cut down into made into second growth forests. So I was really interested in that at that time. So, uh, backtracking a little growing up in the 
Reagan's hometown. I mean, did you grow up in a nature loving family or was it sort of a departure from your childhood? Well, one thing about the Midwest is there, there's a lot of corn and a lot of soybeans. And so the, a lot of the, the nature is, um, is sort of a monoculture yeah. of, of, and so you don't find a lot of this, the diversity, um, like you do, although you can find it along creeks. Um, there's some prairie restoration I got involved in and that, that was really neat. And, you know, getting some of that tall grass prairie back and some of the oak savannas there. Um, but my family, not so much. We had a little track of woods though, out in front of my house. I think that's maybe what got me into it. We'd always go down to the river, which probably at this time is probably almost too toxic to get in, unfortunately, but, um, you know, we'd get in that river. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably, I mean, if, uh, if anything happens to me, it's probably that time I spent (laughs) in the rock river. From BLM, where did you go? How did Chaos Wild get started? Yeah, so at that time, my my boss at BLM, uh, a great biologist, uh, she was really concerned about the direction direction of the BLM at that time, and she actually introduced me to um, Spencer Lennard, who was getting Chaos Wild going at that time, and um, she just knew that I probably would be happier doing that kind of work, and um, I. Yeah, I just kind of jumped in to what KS Wild was doing, uh, which was really looking at all the timber sales on public lands mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to um, figure out a way to save some of those older trees that were being uh, targeted for cutting at that time. So she really turned me on to KS Wild, my oh, boss okay. at the at the BLM. Yeah. So at that time, was it sort of just a side passion project or did they have things up and running? Were people doing this full time? Yeah, there were a couple people doing it full time. Um, and I started out just sort of part time and eased into it. And, um, uh, yeah, there was uh, a lawyer. Um, and then the founder, Spencer, were the two employees. Okay. Um, but we quickly grew and started taking on more and more. Um, and started to become more interested in, uh, the region instead of just like the, the backyard. Right, right then they were, they were in Williams, uh, out in the Applegate Valley. And so they really started to look at the eco region of the Klamath Siskiyous, right. um, which is a much bigger backyard. Yeah. I read like 11 million acres. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, it's huge. I had no idea it was yeah, so big. Yeah. It's huge. You know, that stretches all the way down from essentially Redding, California, north to Roseburg from the coast over to the Cascade Crest. And, you know, we've morphed over time and we've really concentrated a lot of our work in the Rogue Basin um, with our program that we launched in 2009, the Rogue River Keeper. And so it's really grown and evolved in what our focus and our geography is. But yeah, it's still a pretty, pretty big chunk of land it that we were going to. Yeah. And so what, what defines that line for you guys or how, how do you come to those decisions? Right. On- well, eco regions are often defined by geology and ecology, a mixture of those okay. things. So what, you know, what's the sort of, um, there's no bright lines, right? It's not like, right. it's not like the, the black bear knows where to stop and say, oh, I'm in this region and I'm not going to go to that one. And you have things like salmon, for example, like in the Rogue Basin um, that go up the Rogue River and they go through the Siskiyous and they keep going up. And, you know, the top of the, the basin, the headwaters of the Rogue River is Crater Lake, which is most certainly the Cascades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we look at, at all those things that kind of determine where we work and we work with our partners, um, to the north. For example, there's a group called Umpqua 
watersheds. So we don't really work much in the Umpqua Basin because okay. they do a lot of work up there. And then to the south, there's a group called Epic out of Arcata, California, that does a lot of similar work. And we'll often partner with the groups that work yeah. sort of on our boundaries. And so it's sense. a little bit organic. Um, but, you know, by and large, we're focused on this klamath Siskiyou region, which is known mostly because of its bedrock geology. Um, and so these mountains out here are 600 million years old, possibly, you know, uplifted seafloor. Yeah. And it's a lot different geology than the Cascades, which are newer volcanic right. geology. So that's one way that you can really okay. kind of know that you're in the Siskiyous. Here in Ashland, you know, you look on one side and that's the Siskiyous right. up Mount Ashland. Right. And then if you look towards Grizzly Peak, that's the old Cascades, yeah. which, um, so, so we're right kind of sandwiched in here between these two mountain yeah, ranges. So interesting too, yeah. how different they are, mm -hmm. even just right. opposing sides of a valley. Right. But, you know, of course the plants and the animals and everything else, you know, don't, don't stick to the cleanly to those boundaries, but right. it's, uh, it's one way that, that we look at it. And, and like I said, because of the rogue river going all the way up, you know, into the cascades and salmon work that we do, we often find ourselves working in the cascades too. Yeah. So. yeah. So you mentioned being out in Williams. Is that I read about a yurt? Yeah. Being in part of the origin stories. Right. The yurt yeah, was. I know. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I think some people exaggerate their origin story and talk about how grassroots their their garage that they started their <laughs> right. software company in or whatever. Right. We really were in a canvas yurt. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was. We found um, there were some problems actually in the winter because you know we were we'd leave at night. We'd have to come back in and fire up the wood stove to warm things up. And um, the hot and cold temperature fluctuations were wreaking havoc on the computers. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, I was starting to yeah. condense water in there and stuff. So we had to kind of <laughs> should keep it warmer at night. But yeah, it was just a it was just a little canvas yurt that a donor had given to us to use on his property. And um, yeah, just sandwiched a bunch of people in there. And it was how many were working? In oh there? gosh, it went probably at the peak there, there were about five people. Okay. And I was originally back, you know, I, I, I was living in, you know, in the Rogue Valley over here before I moved to Williams for the job and okay. had all my friends over here. And so finally I was like, this doesn't make sense yeah. to have this remote outpost. <laughs> and we're, you know, we also need people to support our work. So I ended up, um, moving an office back over here to Ashland. Okay. And um after a couple of years of living in Williams. They were great years, but Yeah. Any uh great stories that have come out of living in the yurt days and um, oh, so you were living in a yurt at Oh the I mean time. yeah well well I was living in a separate yurt actually. Were you? <laughs> which was yeah. Which was a Your wooden yurt. It was a wooden yurt. Piece. Yeah, it was a lot of <laughs> lot of yurts. Um something about the roundness. It's supposed to be good for you. Better than these square lines, but um um, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know, some stories. There was Mugwort the cat that we had. It was this almost feral cat that would come around. But every time we had a meeting, she would come around. Um, there was a nice little pond out the back of the year with a deck that we used to have our meetings, um, on the deck. And, you know, it was great. There was another group that we merged with, a group called the Siski Project, um, that we merged with in 2000 and and 11. And, um, they were all based in the Illinois Valley. And so some of the staff that came over from the Siskiyou project, um, even predate KS Wild. Got so it. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really cool, uh, 
history of the Siskiyou Project dates back to 1983. So, so our activism in this region, you know, is um, a long, deep yeah, history. Definitely. So getting into some of the current campaigns that you have right now, um, I know one of the concerns is the new BLM management plan and the proposed timber sales. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, and as, as you know, as I said, I have a long history with the BLM and, um, you know, there's, we have, first of all, the BLM land is pretty unique here in Western Oregon. Most of the forests that are public forests are managed by the U S forest service. It's actually different that we have forests that are managed by the Bureau of land management. Um, people that are familiar with Western landscapes probably know that, the BLM manages mostly deserts, like in places like Arizona and Nevada. I see. Yeah. So a lot of the, you know, non-forested public lands of the West are right. BLM lands. And it's actually quite quite a bit of acreage. Um, and so there's this unique history that the BLM has here in Western Oregon. It started with a, a failed um, railroad. Um, the ONC company was going to build a railroad between... Portland and San Francisco. And so they were deeded a bunch of land um, to do that way back, you know, when they were still settling this area. And instead of building the railroad, they ended up just kind of selling off the land (laughs) and logging it. And, um, and federal government caught wind of that and took the land back from them. And this is as the forest service had already been kind of established. And, um, and so it was this weird, fate of circumstance that the BLM ended up with all of this forest Mm -hmm. here in Western Oregon. And also a lot of it in this checkerboard ownership pattern, every other square mile and a lot of areas are public. And then um, the other square, uh, the alternating squares will be private, either private industrial timberland or just private residential rural residential land. You know, now if you look at it, um, if you go to your, Google Maps, and you turn on the satellite, and you start looking around the Rogue Valley, you can see that checkerboard ownership from from the satellite images that actually have such logging. a bright line of wow. logging. So because a lot of the alternating sections are, are private industrial land that right. have been managed more for, for just timber production. Yeah. So um, the long and short of it was that in 1937, there was a bill passed called the ONC Lands Act that said it was pretty forward thinking at the time that those BLM lands should be managed for a multiple use of timber production, but also watersheds, which was amazing. They even used that term in 1937 <laughs> and recreation facilities. Um, and, you know, of course, since 1937, other laws have been passed, like the Clean Water Act um, and the Endangered Species Act that govern the management of, of those, of those forests. So, um, so there are about 2.1 million acres of ONC lands in Western Oregon, but down here in Southern Oregon, we have the the largest concentration. We have about 800,000 acres of, of all of those lands, um, on just the Medford district BLM. So mm-hmm. those are kind of scattered all around the, the rogue basin. Mm-hmm. And, um, so the BLM has plans that they come out with to manage those lands. And yeah, we're concerned about how those lands are managed. And uh, 
for a long time now, we've been working really hard to try to see these forests restored and, um, and do as much good work as we can, uh, thinning, um, focusing our, our management on smaller trees near communities and, um, and doing, um, restoration, getting prescribed fire back in these forests. Now, here in Southern Oregon, we have a lot of people that live adjacent to these lands. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a big fire season. Maybe I'll talk about that in a little yeah. bit, but, uh, we, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of need to, you know, focus our management on, on community protection and, and, and restoration. And so we are concerned that this new management plan emphasizes more like just kind of getting the cutout. Um, um, although, you know, they, they have some, some of these sales, you know, they, they can do the right thing. It's just, uh, you know, there's a push just to kind of, focus on timber production, maybe over, Mm -hmm. over some of those other values that we can get off those lands. So I'm curious, I don't really know much about these management plans. Can they change like based on whatever policies are happening in DC? Is that like Mm -hmm. how these new management plans come about? Like based on who's, who's in power? Yeah. There's a bit of a pendulum that swings back yeah. and forth and yeah. there's a, there's quite a bit of um what the word is deference given to the agencies to okay. interpret those yeah. plans. Yeah. So yeah, um and 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 what's prioritized and what types of of treatments they do on okay. a particular tract of land isn't um, necessarily prescribed in those plans. And so 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 those are sort of a high level. So you have planning that happens at 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 a couple of different levels. One is that, that plan. So the, the BLM plan, there's, there's actually only two of them for that whole 2.1 million acres of ONC land. So there's one for the North and one for the South. And the South is a bit more geared towards a drier forest type and the North is geared towards a wetter forest type. But, you know, so that covers that, that South plan covers over a million acres. And so yeah. when we actually get down to do some work on the ground, we're talking, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres perhaps at a time. And so those plans, um, you know, what they're going to do with a particular tract is done usually through what's called an environmental assessment. And so that's where those local land managers can decide what exactly they're going to do on that tract of land. And so I feel like I have a good understanding of what the potential issues are with this new management plan, but then what can you do? What can chaos wild do to influence that? Or Mm -hmm. um, what's your role? Well, we try to influence it throughout the stages of planning. So, um, you know, there's the, before the EA comes out, the BLM might say, Hey, we're looking at maybe doing something in this area. We're like, Hey, here's some ideas about what you can do in this area. And then, um, you know, oftentimes like, oh, that what KS Wild wanted to do is not enough timber volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're not the only ones. There's lots of people engaging in this public process. Um, okay. One of the environmental laws that was passed in the 1970s, signed by Richard Nixon, a Republican, was the National Environmental Policy Act. And that is just a law that says that, you know, you have to, that good, um, process will lead to good outcomes, you know, and that's right. it's sort of a, a general rule of thumb. Yeah, and and so if you get if you get good input from people and you know you have good science and good specialists informing mm-hmm. what you're gonna do, then um likely the your plans that you execute on the ground will be better than if you hadn't done that. And so um and so in the early stage we'll we'll participate in that process of developing that environmental assessment. 
through the um, National Environmental Policy Act. So I told you there's an acronym soup. of And so we'll we'll participate in that, and um, and often a lot of our members will too. That's another thing is that we have over 3,000 members, and so they're very interested and engaged. A lot of these people get out or live near BLM lands. Um, so a lot of our members will be, you know, potentially personally impacted by right. them just by, right. cause that's their neighborhood. Yeah. Um, that was, what's was also interesting with KSWAL is that that's actually how we've gotten a lot of our support was people that, you know, really have a, a big stake in what happens out there. So, right. so we'll engage early and a lot of our members will. And so will timber companies and other people and, okay. and they'll, they'll say, Hey, you know, you know, we I think you should do it this way. You should think about this or, yeah. And one sale, somebody's like, hey, I know where there's a owl nest site, you know, I want you to protect. Or a lot of times there's water issues. Mm -hmm. um, and and so we'll just try to make sure that early um, in that stage, in the planning stages, that the BLM knows what those concerns are. Now, if we're ignored <laughs> and the BLM, you know, pushes ahead with something we think is going to be damaging to the environment, we'll um, step up our game and, um, you know, try to try to. Um, you know, get experts to weigh in. Mm -hmm. um, we'll try to make sure the BLM knows, you know, what the law is and that they might be violating the law if they, if they um, push ahead. And more often than not, you know, we're able to come to some understanding. And, you know, I think with a lot of this stuff, it's like everybody can get kind of what they need out of it, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and what we found is there's probably, there's a lot of common ground, you know, there's a lot of um, places where, we can protect the important wildlife habitat, make sure that clean water comes out of um, our streams mm -hmm. and timber companies can get, you know, timber out in yeah. an environmentally yeah. sensitive way. So that's usually what happens. You know? Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple other current campaigns I wanted to ask about, but we're sort of in the topic of timber and mm -hmm. we touched a little on fire, which I know for you guys right now is a big topic. Mm -hmm. um, and Everybody. I, I don't know if you could live here and not have it be a big topic. <laughs> right. Right. It was an epic um, smoke year. Yeah. And, you know, as a lay person and as a resident, you can't help but wonder what's going on, what's caused it, what's going to, help this situation. And I know you guys are really putting out a lot of great information to, to try to address that. Um, mm -hmm. I saw your recent newsletter was covering that topic and yeah. can you give me a little bit more of your, your input? And it might be a whole podcast, but yeah. I'll, uh, no, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try. It, it is something that I think um, more and more people are, are learning about. And that's great to see if there is a silver lining out of this fire season, you know, mm -hmm. is that there's so much interest and I'm amazed at the sophisticated, um, you know, approaches I'm, I'm hearing from people that, you know, just are studying the stuff on the side. And, yeah. um, but yeah, I think, you know, our, our, first of all, our forests here and as are many forests in the world, um, not just here in the Western United States, but in the world, you know, are adapted to fire and, um, fire has been a part of these forests for a long time. Um, and Native Americans used fire quite a, frequently in many places in this region. Um, and so a lot of these forests had been, um, 
before you know people came and before there were any chainsaws mm -hmm. they were managed uh with with some fire and of course then there were there are natural lightning strikes that caused fires right. and and so um we um came in and and uh it was after the big 1910 fire in the western united states really decided that we needed to put the fires out mm -hmm. Smokey the and Smokey the Bear came, <laughs> and um, it made a lot of sense at the time, and uh, and so that has had the consequence of um, leading to less fire, and um, especially probably less lower severity fire that would have cleared out um, brush and small trees from a lot of our forests. Uh, there's been a lot of great work that has actually done gone in um, today. Um, reconstructing the history of fire in this region by looking at old tree stumps. So because we still do have these really old trees here, um, they actually record the right. fire history. Right. It's kind of neat, right? So yeah, you can go back so and, and, um, you can look at the fire scars that have, um, been, um, you know, given a history of fire in, in the tree ring data on old stumps and reconstruct that history. And so we see that, you know, we had some pretty frequent fire in a lot of our forests, uh, for a long time. And then we stopped all the fire right. stopped about a hundred years ago. Um, and so you can, you can either, if you have a stump, you can cut off a, a cookie of a stump and look at mm -hmm. those. You can also use an increment borer and actually take a little increment like you would you know, take a core out of an apple. Mm -hmm. You can do that to a tree. Um, and so you can also see that there's a lot of these younger trees that have had no fire. And so, um, you can start to draw some conclusions about maybe what, um, what these forest stands may have looked like previously and then what they look like now. And so there are many of them that are, that are dense. Um, and there's a lot of scientific debate about how far that departure is from like maybe what was normal or what was, um, you know, something that had been in the past mm -hmm. uh, in this area. But I'm pretty convinced that, you know, we have, we have some dense forests. And, um, and so that's one thing that's happened. So you're saying that there in the past, prior to the last hundred years, there were probably fire seasons on the same scale as these ones were having the last couple of years. <sighs> I don't know if it was the same scale and I, and it also was probably, um, you know, we put a lot of fires out still, even though we had a big fire okay. season, you know, people are like, they didn't put all the fires out. Actually, they put 98% of the fires out and it was only a couple that got away. And so there's a lot of people that are, are worried that we're actually just getting those fires that are, um, in the late summer, in the hottest right. part of the year, right. you know, and so we're, we're just having that sort of extreme, um, all condensed yeah. all at once, mm -hmm. um, versus maybe fires that would have burned, you know, um, under less, um, drought, less, right. less, um, late summer conditions. Okay. Um, so, so that's one factor, but we actually have other factors that are leading, um, to kind of what, you know, our, that we put our, our stamp on this region. One is that we've cut a lot of our big trees. And so, um, one thing that we're seeing is that those bigger trees, because they have really thick bark and we can tell that they survived fires in the past, that they're more resistant to fire than younger trees with thin bark. And it makes sense, right? Like yeah. if you try to start a fire, you don't start with a really big log. Right. You start with kindling, right. you know, and what, what is the kindling in the woods? It's the branches and twigs and needles and small trees and brush. And so every time we go in and cut down a big tree, 
what grows in its place, but more kindling. Um, And that's especially true on a lot of the industrial land and a lot of Mm -hmm. the um, public lands that we've managed with an industrial model for a lot of years. And so in addition to fire suppression leading to this ingrowth of all these small trees and brush, we've also replaced our more fire resilient components of our landscape, those big trees with lots of fire, (laughs) with lots of kindling. Um, And so that's something else that's happened. And there's a third thing. And I think all these three things are really important to consider together, but I'm going to tell you the third thing, but then I want to, I want to make sure because everyone's like, no, it's this one thing or it's this other thing and i just think it's important actually um things uh there are multiple causes yeah. <laughs> for, for certain things you know you know yeah. like um and uh i think we can see that maybe human health might be a way you know it's not just the exercise it's the diet right. <laughs> you know right. um you know so so the third thing is that we've warmed everything up and you know um i don't I don't like to debate climate change with anyone, but you can look at the records from the Medford airport and it's, it's, you know, whether it's human caused or not, it's warmer. Um, five of the last hottest summers on record have been in the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just a little bit warmer means that all of that kindling out there is that much drier and that much more susceptible um, to fire spread. So the thing that I'm most interested in is, Knowing that history, knowing that our forests, you know, are, are more dense, knowing that we want to save our big trees because they're on average going to survive fire better than, than the kindling will. You know, what can we do to build that better relationship with fire? And that's probably my, that's, I think my life's goal right now yeah. is trying to figure that out. And, um, you know, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people whose life goals that that is. And we have a lot of great leadership, um, trying to figure that out. What, what is the right type of thinning and the right types right. of places? And how do we use fire in the right way? And hopefully maybe when it will like go up and out into the atmosphere versus getting stuck and trapped in our valleys yeah. and leading to to, um, you know, when we have inversions leading to mm-hmm. such, such horrible um, uh, smoke effects. And, you know, what can we do as a society to try to get that work done that mm-hmm. will maybe get us to a better place? And, uh, and again, I think it's a combination of things. You know, I think it, we can't ignore that, you know, if it gets warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer, it's going to be harder and harder, you know? Right. Um, and so we have to do something on climate. And we can't ignore that some of these forests are really dense and they, they need work. And we can't ignore the fact that a lot of the people live out really adjacent to these really right. fire prone areas. Yeah. And how do we, how do we make sure that they're protected? Um, and then, you know, making sure that we make decisions um, with our federal land managers that when they're doing these projects, they're keeping the most fire resilient part of the forest, those old trees. So yeah. that's what I'm interested in right now. And so I'm sure you are even more familiar than I am with some of these arguments in favor of more timber sales and more logging Mm -hmm. as a prevention for fire. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are a lot of people that, um, you know, we live in an area that was, was very, the timber industry was a, was a big part of it, you know? And, um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people that think that we should go back, you know, to the way it was in the 1980s when, um, you know, there were a lot of timber jobs and, um, and I, and I hear what they're saying. And I guess I would think that, um, there might be a way to accommodate 
lot of that work through a restoration paradigm that is um, a little bit different than that industrial model um, that I think um, won't work in terms of getting us back to where we want to go. Um, but I think um, I'm not opposed to timber sales. Right. You know, it's got to be sort of like the right kind right. in the right way in the right places. And I think a lot of people are, are waking up to that. But I also know that there's this, um, there, there's probably, it, it probably seems like, well, if we just went back to the way it was, like we wouldn't right. have any fire. And I mean, it's just, you can look at a place like Canada. They had a, a really incredible fire year, you know, and um, they are clear cutting a lot of their forests right now. And, um, and it's kind of like what we were doing in the 1980s. Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. And, you know, we even had really big fires year, years here in 1987, probably in the, in the heyday of, of, of the, of the logging boom here. So, um, so yeah, I hear it. And I think that yeah. there's a, a way to maybe do timber sales that are the right kind of timber sales. Right. The way of doing it is tree selection, being a little more judicious about that. There's a really great new, it's a relatively new tool that the federal land managers have called stewardship contracting. And what that is, is a, is a way for them to uh, sell some of the products from a thinning project, but keep the receipts um, and use the money that they've gained from selling some of that to do the work on the ground. Because what we're finding is that to do the right thing in a lot of these forests, it actually costs money, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that certainly will have jobs. And, and there will be trees that come out and logs yeah. that go to mills. Yeah. But to do the right thing, actually, we're going to have to invest in these forests. Um, one of the ideas I've had, and you know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, that kind of employment, what that looks like is, you know, we have all these firefighters, right? Like, and they do all this work and they're out there and through July, August, and then September, and then they all get laid off. But mm-hmm. a lot of the same skills that those firefighters have, um, you know, c- could they be used to do that kind of work that, that right. we need to get done in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is getting prescribed fire back on the ground. I know everybody's probably sick of the smoke. <laughs> um, but you know, if we could do more of the prescribed fire in the off seasons, that might help, yeah. um, over time, you know, it's not right. going to be an immediate fix, right. but over time, you know, we, we might be able to control a little bit about, you know, where that smoke is and, you know, if it is done during an inversion or if it will, right. you know, I mean, we might be able to live, I don't Everybody's probably really familiar with the AQI, the air quality <laughs> index now. And I like how it's like an emoji, you know, of like the yellow, the yellow ones kind of like stern face. The orange one gets a little sad face. The purple. Right. So could we deal with some, some yellow yes. emojis um, yeah. to maybe prevent some purple respirator emojis? Totally. I think my whole perspective on it has changed now. And I, I think I'd be happy to see yeah, it. Like, Even oh, if it's a little smoke, it's right. so much better than what we've been living in. Yeah. And I think um, it was a terrible, horrible, tremendously sad, dispiriting yeah. <laughs> smoke season. But I think if there's a silver lining, it might be that, that awareness, you know, about, right. um, you know, what, what it looks like. And, and, you know, more people are, are, taking notice of that and we've seen a lot more support for prescribed fire and the right kind of thinning projects and people out in the Applegate Valley, for example, wanting to create their own prescribed fire networks and doing it on their own land and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's been, it's been neat. There's just a lot of interest and, you know, I I think it's something that a lot of people want to capture now because it's easy to be like, Oh, 
fire season's over. Move on. What's right. the, let's move on to the next thing right. and, and forget about it. Um, so, and you know, fair enough. Um, I'm sick of thinking about it myself totally. a little bit, but, um, but I think it's something that we need to kind of, kind of grab hold of and, yeah. Yeah. and, and learn more about. And, you know, knowing that we're not going to do away with it at all, but is there some way that we can, you know, make sure our communities are safe, mm-hmm. um, homes are protected and that, you know, we, we begin to kind of tackle that, um, forest restoration backlog that we have, mm-hmm. um, which is quite expansive. And I think that has a lot of work in the, that we could do in the woods and a lot of small trees that could go to mills and, yeah. you know, a lot of people could be employed. And I also think about the cost and, and I worry that, you know, we won't want to invest that kind of money in it. But then I look at how much we spend suppressing these fires and all the airplanes overhead and all the, it's it's a lot. Yeah. And you would, I, well, and there's one person that says if we just spent as much money on fire prevention and forest restoration as we do on fire suppression that after a few years maybe a decade or so we'd we'd catch up and and you know that takes a lot of leadership and it takes a lot of leadership from washington dc um to to do that but i think it's um i think it makes a lot of sense yeah if you could tell me more about the issues surrounding the liquefied natural gas proposal out Mm -hmm. of this bay yeah Wow, that's a campaign here in the Rogue Valley. It's amazing to see all the stickers, the no LNG stickers, yep. and um, all the people show up at hearings for, um, you know, the permits and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there's uh, we, we have a program called Rogue Riverkeeper. Um, that's a part, I don't know if you're familiar with the Waterkeeper Alliance, but it's a, it's an international alliance. Yeah. So there okay. are, there are river keepers all over the world. Um, and so it's a, there's a San Francisco Bay Keeper, for example. Oh, okay. There's a. So how is that defined? Con- what is a river keeper or a bay keeper? So it's essentially um, means that you know you're part of the Waterkeeper Alliance and and you're the the eyes and the ears for that water body. Um, so it could be a bay keeper, there are lake keepers, and um, there are river keepers. So this um, river keeper program that we have is local Rogue River, and they cover all the tributaries, and you know they look at any sort of sources of pollution and um, they do a great um, water quality monitoring program throughout the summer because some of our water bodies when they get warm can have bacteria pollution in them and so they're monitoring like the Klamath I know gets that green algae right right things like that yeah but even in the in Lithia Park and you know yeah and so there's there's several stations around the Rogue Valley and the Applegate Illinois um, valley up in the upper road cool. that they monitor yeah. then there's this uh, swim guide online so you can actually go to the guide and oh, it keeps up-to-date information about the water quality throughout the summer so yeah especially in august you know and um well maybe one other silver lining from the smoke was it actually i think prevented the water from heating up so much <laughs> because oh. it was sort of dampened right. the heat a little bit right. so but in a lot of summer months we'll we'll get um out, we'll get e coli pollution and so they do that and just educating people about issues in, in the rope basin. But one of the, um, one of the things they've been working on and actually Caswell has been working on for since it began over 10 years ago was this proposal to build a liquefied natural gas pipeline from just east of Klamath Falls all the way across the Rogue Basin and across the Umpqua over to the Coos Bay and to create, um, a facility there that would, um, that would liquefy the gas and put it on ships and um 
And so, yeah, it's um, something that we're really concerned about. It would cross many of our water bodies, including the Rogue River, and many streams and rivers would be impacted by it. Of course, it would be a highly compressed gas that, you know, we're concerned would be dangerous for people. It also, the, the, um, the facility in Coos Bay would become the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Oregon. Just through that liquefaction process. Um, And so it's a thing that a lot of people are fighting. There's also another group here that's done a ton of work on this called Rogue Climate. It's a local um, group that that is focused on climate. And so we've really been partnering with them. Um, They've been doing a lot of grassroots organizing around it. And our Rogue Riverkeeper program has been doing quite a bit of the permit process. So through that, um, trying to build that pipeline, you know, they would have to dredge. They'd have to, um, you know work in stream in a lot of places. And so there's a lot of permits that they have to get to do that. And a lot of the effort right now is on the state because the state of Oregon has a lot of authority to um, deny those permits. Um, um, however, the federal, there's another acronym, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, is, is the, at the federal level, you know, kind of in charge of, of these big um, federal energy projects. Um, and one of the interesting things about this that is not um, like many of our campaigns is that they would have to use eminent domain and take people's property mm-hmm. along the route of this pipeline, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of people, a lot of people out in rural areas, a lot of people that we probably wouldn't normally partner with that are very much on our side on this. And we work really closely with those those landowners and farmers mm-hmm. and people that own land that um, would have their land taken. Um, interesting. It's interesting because, yeah, eminent domain is really supposed to be used for projects that are in the public interest. Right. And so because this is an export facility, it really um, boggles the mind how it can be argued that this is somehow in the in the national interest of the United States, other than just the corporations okay. that would make money, right. you know. Right. And so, right. um, so that was actually the originally the the FERC denied the permit for that for that exact reason because it was like, how can you use eminent domain yeah. on this? And so, um, um, after after the election, yeah, after the election. Um, there's been some different folks appointed to FERC and, um, and this administration has really prioritized those types of projects. And so there's a lot of concern now that, um, that it, that it, it's, um, kind of on the fast track. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to organize to stop it at the state level if, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. How can people get involved in these things? I mean, I, I know that, um, you can become a member, you, I'm sure we can do donations straight to Chaos Wild. Are there other outlets for wanting to make a difference on some of these topics? Yeah, there's there's so much you can do. I think um, I will say, yeah, chaoswild.org, and we have volunteer opportunities there. For the LNG pipeline, rogueriverkeeper.org yeah. is a place you can go and just get on, get on their website and say you'd like to volunteer. Um there are tons of opportunities to show up at these town halls. I think um, we, we've just been seeing an outpouring of, of activism in the last couple of years of people wanting to get engaged and trying to figure out how they can make a difference. And, um, you know, people getting up to speed about the political process yeah. and um, calling their member of Congress and they're um, getting, wanting to go on field trips and things like that. Um, 
so that it just depends what your interest is. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of ways to plug in. Uh, I think, uh, getting involved in the process is the first and most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, being a member of groups really helps them uh, not yeah. only just the, the monetary donation, but to show to, it gives political clout to, to, right. to, to what the groups are doing. Yeah. Um, and so that's really key, I think, for a lot of groups to actually become a member. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit to the Rogue Valley, I have a few questions that I ask everyone. Uh, one is, if you have some friends visiting Southern Oregon, what do you tell them to go do in a day? I I pretty much make them get up really early and go down to the Smith River really? and see the redwoods. And I just, I don't know why I'm just in love with that, that country down there. Why the morning? Just well, just because it's a big day. day. It's a yeah. big day okay. <laughs> you have to do it all. But, you know, it can be done. It's a couple hours. Um, but it's, you know, it, the Smith River to me is an incredible place. And the, seeing the redwoods is stunning. Yeah, and what brought and you, you here if in you the can first get, place, If right? you can get the, and then if you can sneak in a view of the Pacific Ocean, um, you know, that's, that's quite a day. It's a big day, but um, it can be done. So what's your favorite breakfast spot in the valley? So I just realized there, so the, the coast brands themselves as the wild rivers coast, which makes a lot of sense. Right. Like they have a lot of wild rivers there. Yeah. So the Northern California, Southern Oregon coast, um, when you go over to Curry and Delnor County, you'll see a lot of stuff of the wild rivers coast. And I realized there's a food trail. I just discovered this as we saw a little sticker on this place that we ate in Port Orford, which after camping for four days on the Elk River, we came out all all gnarly. all gnarly is the right word. And there was a lot of mosquitoes, and our kids had a few mosquito bites in their face. Felt bad for the for the boys, but we went to this place called the Redfish, and it was incredible breakfast. Um, and I don't know if it was because we had been eating camp food for four days that it was so incredible, but Low standard. yeah, yeah. And by, by comparison to our to our camp food, it was it was um, it was great. That's so, awesome. You said it was redfish. Redfish, yeah, oh. in, in Port Orford. So if you find yourself over on the coast um yeah, go to there and i guess you can look up there's the the wild rivers food trail okay yeah and there's like a lot of a lot of great restaurants um along the food trail there was another one in in um brookings called the catalyst i think it is that has an incredible food too a lot of, a lot of seafood there so. cool yeah. good um what about your favorite dinner spot well my Wife and I often go on date night when we can get, you know, just even two hours. Um, and we just, we go to the Taqueria Picaro. Oh yeah. I love it there. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like affordable yeah. and cheap. And, and great ambiance. Yeah. Like it. Yeah. It's great. Um, so we really like, we really like going there. I think maybe it makes us think that we're on vacation in Mexico too or something, you know, <laughs> we get margaritas and, yeah. um, and, and have tacos there. But there's there's so much great food around here. Um, oftentimes we'll go to Kaleidoscope with our kids oh, okay. um, in Medford. In Medford yeah. yeah, they have a great pizza place. Um, what about place to get drinks? You already mentioned margaritas. And yeah, Picaro. Yeah, um, I had just checked out for the first time uh, the Jefferson Spirits, which are oh. both they both in Medford and Ashland now. They okay. have two locations. Yeah, and we um, we went there on Friday night. It was in, it was great. Um, Great. I'll cool. have to yeah. check that one out. Mm-hmm. And then what's your f- favorite thing to do on a day off? I, I love getting out, but I have to admit, I'm, I'm sort of a, I sort of like puttering around the house. I have projects going all yeah. the time. So, um, home I, improvement projects. Yeah. Just to, um, admit here, 
that I build a lot of sheds. My wife is like mad at me for how many sheds we have in our backyard. How many? <laughs> well, we have a sandbox that has a roof. If you count that and the chicken oh, coop and cool. the, um, and the, um, shed in the, maybe four. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a lot. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. But, um, you know, some of them, I'm doing it for the kids and she wanted chickens. So that's not, they're not all my so fault. They're, for her. they're not all my fault. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I'm, I get involved in those types of projects and, you know, just working with my hands. I, yeah. I really like to do that because yeah. a lot of my, a lot of my work is, you know, uh, getting out and being in the community, but I also spend a lot of time in front of a computer. And so I, yeah. I really like working with my hands. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. Well, if you get uh, capped off at four, we could use the sets <laughs> at our house. Right. So, this is sort of a funny question. This is one of my standards that I ask everyone where this type of thing might not have already come up, but I want to ask if there's any changes you'd like to see in the Rogue Valley. Of course, for you, we've been talking about changes already. Um, so maybe branching out of like environmental type of changes. Mm -hmm. Does anything else come to mind? Well, I think that, I mean, I know we've been doing a better and better job with um, transportation and RVTV and all that. But, you know, I think the Rogue Valley could benefit from just an easier place, you know, to get in and out of. Um, sometimes fly out at four in the morning. Sometimes like I have to get up, you know, that's tough. There's no um, train. You have to go to Klamath Falls to catch the train, you know, and th that makes it hard. So. I think we could do a better job with public transportation and make it easier to get in and get out of. And um, I think it would help um, the economy probably if people yeah. could get here um, and you know, right. more easily. Yeah. Um, so my last question was, what event do you look forward to most in the area? Well, besides our annual dinner, which is coming up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that uh, just for members? Or no, anyone, anyone can, come. can come. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we changed venues this year, so we'll see, cause it was kind of set. We were selling out at the armory and it was difficult to, you know, we do table service and it's really, it was difficult with the armory's kitchen to do table service for nearly 300 people. So, wow. so, um, we're at the Ashland Hills, so we're okay. check it out this year. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we have so many incredible events. I mean, every, it seems like we celebrate every holiday, like rock stars around here, right? <laughs> It's Halloween or Fourth of July. Kids yeah, yeah, Halloween's fun. We're getting excited for that. So I'll say Halloween because it's coming up next. Yeah, um, yeah figuring out. Do you out. guys dress up? Do you go big? Yeah, we were all Star Wars um, characters one year. My oldest son wants us to all be Power Rangers, but I'm hopeful that we can. <laughs> Are Power Rangers still like a thing? I think there's a new Power today? Ranger. I think there's a new. Oh, I think yeah. Okay. What's the oldest new again? Right. Um, but I. Yeah, I don't know what, what will be, but it's so much fun, yeah, you know, going downtown and yeah. it's, it's, you know, the entire community's in a parade. I know. How cool is that? It is really cool. Yeah. Well, that was all. Thanks so much for being Great. on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find out more about the podcast at www.theroguelocal.com. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I would love to hear listener feedback and topic suggestions. You can DM the show on Instagram or email me through the website. Support for The Rogue Local is provided by our family-owned dental office, Soul Smile, located in Ashland. 
You can learn more about our office online by going to www.soulsmile.com. Music featured on this episode is titled Love Is Not by Broke For Free from the FMA via Creative Commons license. I'm Ryan Cavell, and you've been listening to The Rogue Local.